All right, Sridhar, let's start by introducing our audience to yourself as well as to Elemental Machines. Okay. Um, sure. So I am Sridhar Iyengar, uh, the founder and CEO of Elemental Machines. Um, and just uh, to give a little background about myself uh, and the company, um, I think it's, uh, it's best to, to uh, start off uh, through my own personal career. So I am uh, Elemental is my third startup, um, and I've been doing startups ever since I finished uh, my studies about 20 years ago. So I'm a uh, undergraduate uh, education was in electrical engineering uh, with a focus on signal processing and mathematical modeling. My master's and PhD was in biochemistry with a focus uh, specifically on biological and chemical sensors. So my entire career has been focused on has been involved with, in, in sensors. Um, my first startup was uh, really a continuation of my PhD work, uh, which was in, in glucose sensors for people who have diabetes. Um, so that company I started um, <clears throat> back in 2001. Um, and that, that company is still <coughs> still running independently after 20 years. Um, the company is called Agimatrix. Um, and uh, it is a company that uh, makes a lot of the blood glucose meters uh, that you see on the market. We actually make the CVS brand of glucose meter, the Target Pharmacy brand, Kroger brand. Uh, we also make all of the uh, white-labeled uh, glucose meters for Sanofi. Um, our, our claim to fame uh, through all of that was we made the world's first medical device to plug into the iPhone, and that was obviously a glucose meter that we launched in 2010, so very early days of, of um, digital health, and that's what really caught Sanofi's attention, and that's how that partnership happened. But um, what really made the company sustainable uh, was everything we did behind closed doors in manufacturing. And the problems that I solved back then uh, were the inspiration for what we're doing today at Elemental Machines. So back then, 15 years ago, we were uh, scaling up production, uh, of our glucose, glucose uh, sensor, or glucose strips, um, test strips. Uh, but those are being made at the contract manufacturing facility out in uh, East, uh, out over in um, East, uh, East Asia. And so the challenge that we had was when a production run was, was completed, it would be almost a month before we received those samples here in, in, in Boston, uh, New England area, uh, to do quality control testing and acceptance testing. So if we saw something in the data today that looked like something was, uh, uh, wasn't going properly in the factory, that was made a month ago. And we were making anywhere, anywhere between 1 million to 2 million sensors on a daily basis. So that was a few million dollars at risk. Mm -hmm. And so we had to really understand what was happening in the factory right then and there and not have to wait a month to get the product and, 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 and then uh, look at things. And so bearing in mind, this was 15 years ago. This was pre-Amazon, sorry, uh, pre-AWS, pre-Cloud, pre-Bluetooth, all of this. So getting data off of the out of the factory was actually very challenging. And so we did that in a very manual method. We talked to our partners. Um, you know, they put... Uh, you know, I, I would say uh, dumb sensors around the facility. So things like you know temperature and humidity had a huge effect on the chemistry of what we were doing. But also things like um, manually, uh, uh, sort of manual, uh, sorry, mechanical counters 
on, on machines to know how often they were used. And so all that was typed into Excel, emailed to us. Um, and then over the course of about 18 months, we were able to, um, we were able to model production quality and actually predict two to three months into the future. And that allowed us to reduce our average scrap from 20% down to below 1%. And that was a tremendous amount of savings uh, in terms of yield uh, that uh, gave us the, the uh, financial um, ability to actually go and, 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 and bid aggressively for the store brand white label deals with the CVS and all these sorts of companies. And that was, that was a great learning experience for me because I realized that uh, the power of data, you know, just looking at the data and being able to model it gave us tremendous value. Mm -hmm. The challenge was 15 years ago, there was no cloud, there was no IoT, there was no Bluetooth. It, it just really was very, very difficult from an implementation standpoint. But the lesson uh, stuck with me that, wow, if you can basically measure everything, you can do wonderful things <laughs> that, uh, that have real business value. So then um, in 2011, um, my, my business partner and I uh, started our second venture together. It was a wearable tech company called Misfit Wearables. And uh, we were heavily inspired by, what we, uh, by, by the digital health um, area that we were exposed to uh, as soon as we had made our uh, iPhone glucometer. So we wanted to do something in digital health. And back in 2010, the really the only way to do that was to not be a medical device, but to be a, a consumer electronics uh, product, a health and wellness device. So in 2011, we started Misfit, uh, and we, we made fitness trackers. And we grew that very rapidly, and then we ended up selling that to uh, a watch company called Fossil um, back in 2015, I believe. Now, what was interesting about Misfit was um, our fitness trackers were, they were just motion sensors, uh, accelerometers, and we had almost a million people using them around the world. And it occurred to me that we had kind of accidentally and inadvertently created a, global, uh, a globally distributed sensor network. And I was sitting here going, wow, I can, I can see data from a million sensors around the world with less complexity, less effort, less latency, less cost, less maintenance, um, and less difficulty um, than trying to get data off of a few dozen sensors literally in one factory just, just uh, you know, three, four years earlier. Mm -hmm. And that was really the, um, the inspiration for Elemental Machines. Um, so I, I saw this opportunity where we could really just take you know, 80, 90% of what Misfit had built in terms of infrastructure, repurpose it and reskin it, and uh, turn it into enterprise B2B offering, um, and actually build the products that, uh, that I wish I, I could have just bought a few years earlier. So mm -hmm. in Matrix, we had to build everything from scratch. And I'm sitting here going, here at Misfit, we have you know, basically 90% of <laughs> what, what's needed to create smart factories. And instead mm -hmm. of an accelerometer, you can just put whatever sensor you want. And, and in fact, you can be sensor agnostic. You can just have a, a digital interface. And everything else, the, the connectivity, the fleet management, the cloud uh, backups, the cloud visualization analytics, everything was already there. And so that was sort of the idea. And as I was thinking about this, um, we started the process for, for uh, selling uh, Misfit to, to Fossil. And so at that point, I decided, I think this idea has some legs. So 
um, let's create a new new company and let's let's run with it. And that's how Elemental Machines got started. And did you um, yeah. were you able to use the technology that you had built for Elemental Machines? Um, so uh, we decided. Uh, so simple answer is no. Uh, the reason for that was we didn't want to. Um, uh, complicate any of the potential acquisition uh, mechanics with fossil. Mm-hmm. We wanted that to be very, very clean and not complicated. And, okay. and truth be told, it was yeah. This is something that we we felt we could build from scratch um, anyway. So. Okay. All right. So elemental machines. Let's talk about um, you know which customers did you start working with? Where where did you start getting your early traction and, and what kind of use cases and, and what exactly, how did it play out, your thesis? Yeah, so this is actually a very, very good question because it, it, it shows uh, that every startup, when you start out, you don't really know exactly what the product market fit is. And, it, and uh, so our journey in the, in the early days um, kind of shows this. <coughs> so my original thesis or hypothesis, if you want to call it that, um, was that we can make it very, very easy for uh, factories to create a smart factory and measure everything, have it go to the cloud, and uh, you know, customers can use that data to do their own modeling, or we can model it for them and, and improve their production and, and all of that. And uh, I wanted to start with life sciences, biotech and pharmaceutical companies uh, and med tech mainly mm-hmm. because that was the world I had come out of and I had some contacts. I had the sure. proverbial Rolodex. Um, and so you know, I went to people that I knew um, in the industry and I said, hey, this is what I'm building. What do you think? And universally, folks said, that's a great idea. Yes, it's needed. Because here's what happens. When somebody invests 10, 20, 30 million into a factory, that factory has to run for 10 to 15 years. But you know, five years into it, the people who are running it are not necessarily the ones who designed it. And there's a lot of retrofitting, there's a lot of uh, enhancements you need to do. And so we were going to be that, that layer to make it very, very easy. But the challenge was, and the feedback we got almost universally was, fantastic idea. However, unless you have ISO 9001 certification, unless you have CFR Part 11 compliance, unless you have this, 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 and this, we can't really use you in in production, because you, mm-hmm. you know, un, uh, unless you have all that, um, it places a huge burden on us to have to validate everything. And so they said, it's just not worth it. You know, please come back when you have all that certification. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're when you're you know three or four people working out of a, uh, a startup, you don't you're not there yet. But what we also heard from these same people was, why don't you go talk to our colleagues in the R and D departments? instead of us here in manufacturing, because they have many of the same problems that we do, but they have none of the regulatory requirements. So they may be early adopters for you. And we've heard that from multiple folks. Um, and uh, so that's what we did. We talked to the R&D folks in the same companies, and they all said, yeah, this is great. Come on in. Um, yeah, we'd love to try out what you're doing. And so that's how we got pulled into the lab and R&D side of, of Pharmaceutical and biotech and medtech companies, and that was a, that was a yeah that was a real learning. Then that product market the product was great, but the regulatory part of it we were not it was uh, complex. Able to hit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
explain to me, double click down a little bit on on the lab of MedTech and tell me how exactly um, your product plays in that environment. Yes. So um, what we've seen in the last, say, 10 years or so, uh, there's been a tremendous acceleration of biotech and life science startups, uh, much mm -hmm. more so than the decade prior to that. And one of the um, one of the one of the um, specialties or areas of focus is is this field called synthetic biology. And with synthetic biology, it's you know it, it's basically what we used to call genetic engineering 20, 30 years ago, um, mm -hmm. but genetic engineering um, with a whole new set of tools and a, and a whole new set of computational um, the systems that that we can bring in. Uh, AI techniques to find patterns that you couldn't find before. And so what we've seen is in the, in the preclinical uh, research phase, there's a tremendous um, push and need for data, unlike any time before. And so what that means is the people who used to run the labs, you know, forget the scientists for now. Let's just talk about the people who support the lab operations. The technicians. Um, the technicians, the lab managers, um, the IT managers, uh, any, everyone who supports the activity of the scientists, they have, they're facing challenges that they, that they never had to deal with 10 years ago. So as, as an example, um, what they're finding is in order, to, in, order to, um, in order for the scientists to actually run uh, good models, they need data from everything. We have customers that say, we need to know not only the, the, the data coming off of the machine, but we also need to know things like when was the machine calibrated because we're seeing differences between machine A and machine B, even though they're supposed to be doing the same thing. We're seeing differences. So when was it calibrated? Um, and also, what's the location? Uh, and, you know, machine, the same machine in room one and the same machine in room two give different results. Well, it's because they're on different... Uh, you know, one is by the window and one is by the air conditioning. And that level of, of scrutiny wasn't there uh, you know, 10 years ago because now what, what the scientists uh, have and the data scientists, what they're doing is um, they're cross-correlating and finding you know, really, really sensitive differences between uh, different types of procedures and protocols. And what they're finding is that there's a lot of, a lot of unknowns. And the, the lab managers and the technicians and all these folks are having to collect this information and present it to them in a way that they can do computation on. And so it, it's very similar to um, the analogy that I make for my friends who are uh, in, in, in the pure, pure software industry is um, there's an entire field of, of, of software called DevOps or, or, or developer operations. Um, DevOps is a very hard field. It's, it, it's it's hard to find a good DevOps engineer these days. However, you go back 10, 15, 20 years, the people who are doing DevOps now, back then they were called systems administrators or, or, or sysadmins. And sysadmins were the folks that you never really saw. They, they were in a windowless basement, um, and you only approached them when things went wrong. Um, but with the advent of cloud computing and the advent of a tremendous amount of other third-party tools, the sysadmins had to expand and grow into an entirely new field called developer operations, DevOps. 
That's what we're seeing in the life sciences. The lab managers um, are, are having to grow into uh, lab operations managers, lab ops. So lab managers and technicians are becoming lab ops because they're having to deal with things like how do you get this data into the cloud so that the scientists can, can access them? What about information security? What about encryption? Um, what about interoperability? There's, you know, there's instruments that these people use that are 15, 20 years old that were designed in a time that was pre-internet. Uh, uh, pre so how do you even get data off of these machines? Because even today, um, uh, in, in a lot of labs, data is manually written down on paper in, in physical lab notebooks, and then typed into Excel, then copied into Google Sheets, and then imported into XYZ. So lab operations is going through this transformation where the, the, the hunger and, and, and need for data is outpacing the technologies that can support that. And that's a huge driver for, for what we're doing. And how um, architecturally, how is your product deployed in a lab setting? Is it a bunch of sensors that are um, put on machines? Is it software that is getting installed on machines? What, what is the deployment architecture? Yep. Um, so the best way to think about us is uh, we're a hardware-enabled SaaS system. So we, we pull data off of machines, instruments, and environments. Um, mm -hmm. And all that goes to the cloud. And there's really principally two different modes of operation. So one is uh, uh, just straightforward sensors. So you know, the sensors that are relevant to life science work. So temperature, humidity, uh, air pressure, light levels, um, examples of, of sensors that we actually pack into our own little, little box. Uh, uh, our devices are called elements. So element A is ambient, uh, has temperature, light, humidity, and air pressure built into it. Uh, we have one called element T for temperature, and that's for extreme temperatures, cryogenics, you know, minus 200 Celsius up to high temperature ovens. Um, and we use those for when uh, the machine or instrument doesn't have any output, and we need to uh, provide, uh, we need to really understand what's happening. So the, the, the most common example is controlled environments, so cold storage, refrigerators and freezers. Um, we use an element T. And uh, the thing that I highlight is um, in the last year, because of the pandemic, cold chain and cold storage has become uh, come into the media spotlight. So I'm, I'm sure you, you probably come across um, those ar news articles maybe you know, six, eight, nine months ago that said, oh, a whole bunch of vaccines were lost because the freezer failed. And all of a sudden, you know, my friends who, are in the, who uh, don't really know about this industry kept saying, how can freezers fail? I'm like, well, it happens a lot more <laughs> than, uh, than you realize. Nobody writes about it. Uh, but now with the pandemic, it, it, it's getting media spotlight. So for machines and instruments and environments that don't have built-in sensors, we have our own uh, sensor boxes. The other mode of operation um, is um, we, we do have a analog and digital interface so we can plug into machines and instruments, pull data from them directly, and shoot it to the cloud. So the whole idea is that we have hardware, you know, whether it's independent sensors or, or just a, a analog digital interface, we can plug into third-party machines, third-party sensors, um, and pull everything to the cloud. It's all wire, wireless um, through Wi-Fi with cellular backup and 
uh, goes uh, back to one of our cloud servers. Very interesting. So um, what level of adoption are we talking about in the lab ops, as you've called it? You know, how many, uh, you know, what, what is the pace of adoption in this world that you are working with? Yeah. So um, it, it really depends on the type of company uh, that we're working with. So um, I had mentioned uh, synthetic biology. Well, the synthetic biology companies out there were very, very early adopters. They were our first adopters um, and because of the, the need for the data. And the reason why I highlight the synthetic biology community is if you look at life science companies in general, biotech and pharma and all that, um, I have a thesis. And at some point, I'm sure I'll, I'll write a blog post about this, but um, I'll give you a quick preview about my, my opinion here. Um, I have, a, I have a thesis that you know, the more traditional biotech and pharma companies were really founded and led by traditional scientists, um, um, you know, biochemists, <coughs> chemists, so on and so forth. And the way research was done was uh, very cause and effect. You, you had a hypothesis, you do a bunch of experiments, you get data, you understand what happened before you take the next value-added step. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, you know, that's, that's fine. That's how I, how I was trained. However, if you look at the new generation of, um, of startups, especially in the synthetic biology space, many of them are founded and run by not necessarily classically trained scientists, but by computer scientists or engineers or data scientists. And the way that, um, you know, these folks approach, um, approach uh, the same problems uh, can be quite different. And it's very much uh, more of a correlation-based approach. And I say that because you don't necessarily need to understand why something works as long as you know how to get it to work repeatably. And to a large extent, that was, um, that was an approach that I had taken in my first company because I'm Although I have a PhD in biochemistry, I was trained as, as an engineer, as an undergraduate, so I approach things from an engineering standpoint. And mm -hmm. so especially when you, when you employ uh, machine learning and AI um, the tools and techniques, a lot of that is basically correlation-based. And so what ends up happening is um, you can take the next value-added step if you can measure everything and ensure that you're within limits. And so the measure everything aspect is, is, uh, is something that was embraced by the, by the synthetic biology community uh, very, very early on. And so they were early adopters for that reason. Uh, and, and that's kind of, uh, that, that's my own, my own opinion, my own conclusion. Um, but what's happened in the last, uh, you know, two years, maybe two and a half, three years, is that uh, we're seeing much greater widespread adoption um, by the more traditional biotech and pharma companies because they're now embracing automation. And now when you're, when you're building automation systems, um, you know, the idea is that you can run it without really being there. And so remote monitoring and data from everything becomes uh, that much more uh, uh, important. So as, as companies shift towards data-first approach, like, a, um, uh, like the SynBio community, or, or an automation approach, like the larger companies are now starting to do, 
um, the need for our products and our, our data collection platform becomes um, that much more uh, sort of critical. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have I don't know if that answered your question or not. <laughs> no, no, that's good. I'm, I'm just absorbing what you said. Um, do you have competition in, the, in this space, or are you kind of like the pioneering company? Um, so there's an element of what we do that, uh, that nobody else really does. Um, so I'd like to say in one regard that uh, we're, we're unique, but in another regard, there's a number of different companies that do that we do overlap with. But one thing that, that we're unique in is um, we uh, we uh, have our own hardware. So uh, making hardware is one of the one of the strengths that we have. Uh, we have cloud cloud-based computing and analytics, um, uh, visualizations, and all of that. And third is we have deep expertise in machine learning. Uh, and so that our analytical capabilities are quite unique. So we're able to take data from various you know, sensors and whatnot and then put a layer of, of interpretation on, on top of that. Um, probably the best example I can give you is um, we can look at how machines are running and understand anomalies, understand events, uh, and understand usage patterns to say, hey, these machines are being used more or less than, than others. Mm-hmm. And also look at how do we, how, you know, uh, how do we characterize the usage and, 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 uh, and anomalies so that we can do uh, predictive, um, we can do uh, failure prediction. So the fact that we can do hardware and cloud and data science puts us in a very unique position. Now, there are a number of companies that will do just the you know, IoT monitoring, so, you know, um, measure, uh, measure XYZ, and if it's out of range, send an alert. Well, that's kind of table stakes. We do that too. Um, there's a couple of companies that do that. Um, there's other companies that do um, um, the software and analytics piece, but they don't do the hardware. So as long as you can pipe data into their system, they'll do the visualizations and, and the analytics piece, but it's garbage in, garbage out. Their, their system is only as good as the data that gets piped into it. Mm-hmm. Our whole thesis is, is, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a core of our thesis is to our customers is uh, really to say, um, you're not collecting as much data as you should or could, um, and so a core part of our thesis is, you need to collect more data, and you do that by using our platform, and so many of our customers will have existing, um, you know software and, and, and analytical uh, capabilities, and the data going into them is limited. And so we come in and say, hey, you want to put 100 or 200 more sensors around? And all that can go into your existing system. And so that's how we create value, is actually widening the, uh, the pipe of, of data that goes in. So we're, I think, quite unique in the fact that we do all three. We do the cloud, uh, we do the hardware, and we do the analytics. Okay. And um, tell me a bit about the company. You told me the Genesis story. Now, have you continued to? Uh, is it a funded company, bootstrap company? How have you built the company? Yeah, yeah no, we're, we're, we're venture backed. Um, we're a Series A uh, company, um, and uh, we've got about uh, 35 people in the company right now. Um, uh, and yeah. where are you based? Uh, 
So we're primarily based in, in, the, in the greater Boston area, um, mm-hmm. but we do have a distributed team as well. So we have, we have folks around uh, various parts. But we're, 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 we're virtual company. Headquartered. Yeah. Oh, no, we're, I think we're definitely we're headquartered here in Boston, but, but Boston. we do have people. Okay. Okay, and um, last question, from where you sit and, and from your long history in the, um, I guess, the biochemistry space, life sciences and um, biochemistry space, mm-hmm. what other IoT open problems do you see that you're not working on, but you, because of your training and your experience, mm-hmm. you, you have spotted that you would like other entrepreneurs to go after? Um, yeah, there's, there's a long list of things that I, uh, of challenges and problems I wish somebody would solve, so I could just buy their solution. Um, and you know, so some of this is, is pretty obvious to anyone who's been in, 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 in our industry, but um, when it comes to IoT, the number one challenge is, is, um, is power, um, power consumption, everything, you know, you can't, you know, for example, if you uh, if, if you want to install 500 sensors, you really can't plug them into the wall because you can't find 500 plugs somewhere. So mm-hmm. you know, it has to be battery powered or or energy harvesting. So everything around power, uh, power, har- you know, energy harvesting, energy efficiency, energy storage. There's an entire area around around that um, that I think uh, is, is ripe for. Uh, opportunity if somebody come up with new materials or if somebody can come up with a new um, new way of, of doing energy harvesting there's definitely uh, an opportunity there on on the IOT side um, on the on the life sciences and bio side it's um, um, even though it's not what we do here at elemental um, you know if I look back in my career um, we really don't have great ways of measuring uh, from a sensor standpoint what's happening inside the body. Um, my first company was a glucose monitoring company. It was based on you know, pricking your finger, getting a drop of blood, sticking it on a sensor, and, and getting a reading. Um, there are companies now that, are, uh, that uh, have developed and are, and are selling um, implantable glucose sensors. In fact, my, my first company, uh, Agimatrix, is, uh, is also doing that. Um, that's something they, they released a couple of years ago. Um, but there's a number of companies st- starting to do that. And here's the challenge. Um, monitoring glucose is just one molecule that's in relatively high concentration. Even getting that one molecule in your body measured at an accurate enough level is still a challenge. But the opportunity here is imagine having an implantable sensor that measures multiple metabolites, multiple things in your body. Um, there's definitely an opportunity for there, but that's going to require, you know, New, new materials, new molecules, new sensing modalities, but implantable and continuous monitoring of uh, biometrics, of different biomolecules, there's a huge opportunity there, especially uh, for, for chronic diseases and, and, and chronic, uh, chronic conditions. Um, so those are two ends of the spectrum. And uh, if I look at something in between, um, there's... there's uh, uh, and this is something that's been highlighted uh, the last uh, last year and a half. There's um, how do you how do you sense and detect uh, people's health and people's movement? So um, 
at least with with uh, with uh, with COVID, the whole idea of contact tracing was brought into the in uh, into the media, and a lot of yep. contact tracing was done was done manually. I mean, mm-hmm. people, you know, when, yes. I, when I got my COVID, yeah, it's all done manually. So, I think we have to realize that um, we are in a world that is we're living in a society in a time where, you know quite literally one person can have global impact as was was evidenced um with with, with COVID. um if, if you look at what people have been doing in supply chain and logistics being able to track packages around the world yeah we have technology for that so imagine if we are able to do that with human beings and yet protect people from you know privacy uh, protect people's privacy and security so i don't think anyone has actually solved that how do you track people in a way that can completely reassure and give give reassurance to people that they're not being, you know, individually tracked and monitored by the government? There's, you know, there's ethical issues there, but yet there's public public health and public safety uh, needs that that are in, in conflict. So there's a great example of where there's a technological solution, but they're not able to translate that into an ethical solution. So that's, uh, you know less of a technology challenge, but much more of a practical uh, sociological challenge. Yeah, and political. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> there is an incredible, hair, incredibly hairy political system that many countries are struggling with to get a, yes. what could be a manageable public health problem sorted just because the political systems are so cumbersome and so convoluted and the, yep. you know, the messaging is so you know, non-benevolent, so self-interest-driven, well, and so on. Well I, well, I think you bring up a very, very good point here in that um, very often uh, many of us who come out of the, the, the technology side of, of, of things, we often forget that uh, you know, just having a pure technology solution isn't going to cut it. Uh, right. Very often there are non-technology, non-technical barriers that need to be solved. And that is something uh, that a lot of engineers and a lot of technical startup founders, like they just, they don't realize that, you know, just because you have a better solution doesn't mean you're going to succeed because there are things like politics, there are things like social ethics that, that uh, you need to engineer, in, in, you know, engineer around or, 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 you know, engineer appropriately. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, Sridhar, terrific discussion. I enjoyed listening to you, and I enjoyed the, um, you know, the discovery of the lab operations process. I fully remembered the evolution of sysadmins to DevOps and the whole uh, trajectory there. So I think what you're providing here uh, is a very interesting insight of the evolution on the life sciences side of that. Um, Let me cut the recording, and I will chat with you for a moment. Mm -hmm.